0: Trust the Lord will bless the preaching of the gospel tonight. Uh, We have been given a a chosen subject. In gospel campaigns, you're really free to go anywhere you like. They're like the disciples. They were scattered abroad, and they went everywhere preaching Christ. Well, I'm constrained, but there's plenty of material. It's really knowing what to leave out and what to center upon in these meetings. And they've gone so very, very quickly. And tonight, uh, well, tomorrow night, God willing, will be the last. It's hard to believe. It has just gone so very quickly. Uh, so I could still encourage you to get folks out to the meetings. It's not too late. There's many a person who has come on the last night of a gospel mission, and the Lord has spoken to him. I was talking to a man, and he says he got saved. And he says that it was the third week of a gospel campaign. They were going for two weeks, and that was the intention. And they felt the Lord was leading them. So halfway through about the second week, they decided to go the third week. And eventually this man said that he was persuaded to come on the very last night of the third week of the mission, which they never had planned for. And he says that was the night that he got saved. Another man I was chatting to, and he was giving me his testimony, and he says, you know, I went to a gospel meeting, and I'll tell you the truth, he says, I didn't want to go. Imagine, now he wasn't dragged out screaming. He went, and he came in, <coughs> the place was packed, and he had to go up right up to the front. And he said he was so embarrassed. And he sat and he said these words. He says, I didn't want to be there. In fact, as I was sitting and they were preparing for uh, the start of the service, I said to myself, What am I doing here? That's what he actually said. But during the preaching of the gospel, uh, the Lord got a hold of his heart. And he said, Sitting there, uh, he came under conviction and he came to the Lord. So it's never too late to get someone out, even on the last night of the mission. And we're not there yet. The Lord can still work. And I know we don't have to have them in a building. We know that. We don't have to be here physically in order to be saved. There are many folks who have been saved at home. Many folks who have been saved driving the (coughs) lorry, driving the car. Some folks, and during the 1859 revival, if you read about it, uh, folks were smitten down with conviction. One thing I laughed at was a man was riding his bike, and he had to get off the bike, and set it on the ground, get on his knees, and seek the Lord. Oh, for days like that again. Now, my father was saved in 1976, and it was uh, what is known as the Way to Life Crusade. Uh, 1976, one of our ministers presently serving, the principal of the Whitfield College, the Reverend Timothy Nelson. He was actually saved as a teenager at that mission in 1976. He probably would say, I wasn't a teenager, I was only about eight years of age, but he was a teenager as far as I'm aware. But he was saved at that mission. And there was a lady called Elsie, she was a Christian. And uh, she went to the local church of Ireland Church and she looked after us because my father uh, was a an alcoholic. If I was to describe my father then, I would say to you that he was a drunken, violent man. And that's putting things mildly. And my body bore the marks of my father's cruelty. That's all I can say to you. Uh, and my father uh, beat me senseless on many occasions. He was the greatest father you could wish for when he was sober. We called it the demon drink. Uh, but whenever he was drinking, he just changed completely. And um, my father and I had no real relationship. Um, along with my three bro- two brothers, we were really street children. And we lived in the streets in Lurgan. And um, sad to say, we stole, we did different things. We got in trouble all the time. Uh, School. A lot of folks felt sorry for us, but I want to tell you something. It was a lady, and she was a believer, born again. And she entered in our home when it was a light in a dark place. She became a tremendous testimony. We call her Elsie. She's still alive today. Uh, And she took a real interest in our home. And she sought to get my father right under the sound of the gospel. The gospel campaign had come to the Oregon Boys Girls Junior High School in Oregon what annoyed me was it was set up on our football pitch and I couldn't take football a uh, huge tent it's a thousand seater tent and they were flocking from Lurgan Porter Down Creek Avenue to that mission one night my father was standing before the mirror the only thing he ever did for himself was put the bill cream on his own hair we did everything all the cooking cleaning ironing you name it sewing I was domesticated long before I got married you know and uh, <coughs> you can't cook too well but I can clean that's for sure but I will tell you this, he was standing getting ready and my brother David said, Dad, where are you going? And he says, son, I'm going to the mission with Elsie. We couldn't believe it. David says, Dad, you're not going to the Windsor Bar? No, son. It's a darts match you're going to? No, it's not, son. It's not. He said, dinner, you're going somewhere. He says, no, son. Listen, I'm going with Elsie to the gospel mission. And he went. I remember him coming home that night. Never forget it. Never forget it. Uh, usually he barged. Uh, most times he reminded me of what I did. It was nothing. And then he would taken a fishing rod and he would beat me and the welts were on my body. I woke up in the morning when the eyes were caked, were crying through the night and obviously into school never never was well dressed, always in trouble. But this night it was different. He went straight to bed and I heard the voice saying, lads, come up here, I want you. And the three boys raced upstairs, we jumped on his bed and as best as my father knew how, he says, lads, your old man's got saved. You know, I didn't know what that word meant. And my brother David says, Dad, do you mean there's going to be no more drink? And he said, son, that's right. No more drink. Can I tell you that from 1976 right up until February 25th, 1990, when the Lord Jesus Christ took my father home to glory, that one drop of drink crossed his lips. I want to tell you he was a drunken, violent man and I know that, my family often said to me you shouldn't speak ill of your father but they never lived with him but I did and my body bore the marks of my father's cruelty but God saved him all because Elsie got him out to the mission and that's all it took just that gentle persuasion and he came and I was glad that he came to that mission and the Lord gave us a new father David said, Dad, how did you change? He says, Son, I haven't changed. The Lord Jesus Christ has changed me. His little saying was, Son, I haven't turned over a new life. Christ has given me a new life. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And if you get the context of the verse, all things are passing away for we're not perfect, and all things are becoming new. And the Lord gave me a new dad. And there's no doubt his prayers, his influence, in my life even though I went astray myself and ended up as you know in Her majesty's hotel maze but there the Lord spoke to me but I always kept in mind my father's testimony and the night at Elsa brought my dad out to the mission And God saved him and I want to encourage you I don't care who they are the biggest, the worst, the wildest sinner in alone, Kilkeen in this district you get them out We trust the Lord to work in their heart and to save their soul. And remember, there's no one too hard to be saved. No one too bad to be saved. No matter who they are or what they've done, there's cleansing and there's power in the precious blood of the Lamb. That's the first sermon over again tonight. Let's get down to the burden of my message. We're thinking about the path to the cross, the journey Christ made to Calvary. We've already considered the trial of Christ. And you should be well aware now of what happened. And uh, hopefully I haven't entered into anything controversial. Uh, but you should at least know. I've repeated it twice. And it does not no harm to re-emphasize things. Uh, six times the Lord was set on trial. First of all he was arrested at 12. And if you project your mind through to this Thursday. As our brother said. We take the traditional line. Uh, this Thursday whenever he was uh, in the upper room. And he has the upper room discourse from John's Gospel 13 right through to chapter 18. And then we find him leaving after singing what we believe was the halal, Psalms 113 through to 118 in the upper room with his disciples. We do believe that. That's what he says. He says we sung him. hymn. We believe it was the halal coming up to the Passover. Uh, that's what generally is sung around the Passover time. And there's no reason not to believe that the, the, the Lord and his disciples sung Uh, the Halal, versus Psalms 113 to 118. Leaving there the upper room, uh, the Lord made his way down through the Kidron Valley. He was heading for the Mount of Olives and just a little further to the Garden of Gethsemane. Crossing the Brook Kidron, the Lord entered in toward the Mount of Olives and into the Garden. It was there that he told the disciples to watch and pray as he went a little further with two disciples and And those disciples are Peter, James, and John. And he said, watch and pray with me. And then he went a little further. You know the wrestlings he had in the garden. It's called the olive press. And the Lord was pressed out of measure as he contemplated the awful, bitter cup of Calvary. It was there. We hear the Lord saying, not my will, but thine be done. And then at midnight, roughly about midnight, Judas arrives, having sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He has the torches, the lanterns, the staves and the swords and these men armed to the teeth and they come they didn't even recognise Christ in the dark and the Lord says whom seek ye? And it says Jesus of Nazareth Jesus the Christ really and they were saying and when he says I am he, they used the divine name Jehovah and immediately they fell backwards and you know the story from then on he was arrested taken then to the house of Annas who was the former high priest, who was really the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Uh, They reckon that five of his sons all became high priests in Israel, one after the other in succession. But in the house of Annas, he he got what is known as a pre-trial. It was there that he was questioned about his beliefs, his teaching, and his disciples. And then he was moved from the house of Annas uh, to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was an individual. Who knew the law of God and he knew that Jews were forbidden to hold trial before sunset. So it was an illegal trial. But they wanted everything done and dusted. And then he examined Christ. And then he came again. And then he left it till the sunset. And so you have the first one in the house of Annas tried. And then you have the house of Caiaphas. And then there came the sunrise. And the 71 strong Sanhedrin gathered. And the trumped up charges charged him with blasphemy one occasion Caiaphas ripped his clothing and says what more need we of proof here it is he says he's the Messiah he's the son of God he's a king we don't need any more proof he says that you'll see him coming in power and glory and there's a higher court than this court and we'll all have to stand before it and he'll be the judge imagine and of course they with their trumped up charges healed him off to Pilate but they couldn't have him put to death under Jewish law blasphemy although he didn't blaspheme and so they had trumped up charges that he was inciting a riot in Jerusalem and this man has disciples and he has followers and these people now will take up arms and Pilate examined him about that art thou a king and of course Christ had to answer that because if he didn't answer it that means he wasn't and he says I am my kingdom is not of this world I am no threat to Caesar and to the Roman armies in Jerusalem my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, then my soldiers would fight. I would arm them, and they would fight. So I am no threat to Caesar. So what they're saying to you is wrong, although I am a king. I am the king of the Jews. And then even chief priest said to Pilate, he says he's the son of God, and he feared greatly. In that moment, he tried to release Christ, send him to Herod. Herod sent him back again, mocked him. And you know the trial, they've gone through it eventually then he scourged him and he handed him over and set Barabbas free and the Lord Jesus Christ we find him then coming outside the city walls of Jerusalem we find him, we've looked at him in trial we've looked at him with the thorns in his brow we've considered that and then last night he just stopped for a moment he halted outside the city walls and he spoke to the daughters of Jerusalem and what a message tonight I want to go a little further I want to take the journey along the path to the cross And then we want just to sit and look at that cross tonight and especially gaze upon the title that was written above Christ. That's the theme for this evening. And we break in at John chapter 19, please, at the verse 12. John chapter 19 and the verse 12. And we read these words, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king, speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat, in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, he saith unto the Jews, Behold, your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and made him away. And he bearing his cross went forth unto a place called the place of the skull. Which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Where they crucified him and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title, and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew, and Greek, and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written. I have written. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the verse 22. We know the Lord will indeed bless the public reading of his own precious and infallible word. Father in heaven, do bless now the preaching and hearing of thy word. Give to us, O God, the hearing ear and the understanding heart. We pray that there'll be one gathered here out of Christ without a savior, that their heart would be open like Lydia to attend unto the things that are spoken. To this end, O God, I humbly pray for cleansing personally through the blood. I ask for the mighty infilling and empowering of thy Holy Spirit. I pray for that unction from above. I humbly ask for the infilling with wisdom and power of the Holy Ghost to preach Christ and him crucified. We pray, Lord, that you'll hide Man far behind the cross. That Christ will be evidently set forth. Before the people. That he will be placarded. That he will be lifted up. We pray for the exaltation. Of the man of Calvary. And as he is lifted up. He has promised he will draw. Precious souls unto himself. To this end almighty God. Give me help and those who hear. And grant Lord that this meeting house. And through the airwaves. That thou will bless the preaching of Christ. May sinners be converted backsliders restored thy people edified and father thy son glorified because we ask it believing with thanksgiving in his precious and peerless name and the people of God said amen the reason for this title that Pilate has written this is Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews I believe it was placed not only upon the cross but maybe even on the person of Christ but The real reason for writing this, I think it's threefold, we could maybe even add a few more. But the first thing I would suggest to you, that this was what is known as a judicial custom. In other words, it was customary. That whenever someone was tried, found guilty and sentenced, and then whenever they were paraded outside the city walls of Jerusalem, they either had this plaque strapped around their neck, or else some little uh, slave would have walked in front and they would have had a pole. And it was nailed to that pole. And they would have lifted it up. And they would have had the name of the individual that was following carrying his cross. And they'd also have the name of the crime that they had committed. And so you can see the scene if you were to look at the two thieves. And you're able to read Hebrew uh, on this occasion. Pilate had it written in Greek and Latin as well. Uh, But you would realize that these two thieves would have their names. Let's say we give them a name. There's Abraham from Bethany. Abraham of Bethany a common thief and then there was his friend perhaps who was his co-thief and we believe that the two of them most likely were caught together in thieving and they would have said perhaps this is Isaac of Bethlehem and then the crime he had committed and that is a common thief and so on or maybe even a thief with violence or whatever they were guilty of the crime that deserved the capital punishment well the Man would have gone before them. And he would have held up this nameplate. Their name was on it. And it was traditional and customary. That they went before the one to be crucified. And the name was there. And then the crime that they were guilty of. So that everybody could see. They were literally named and shamed. On that walk. To Calvary's cross. And to the place of crucifixion. As Christ was literally led. Outside the city walls. That title was lifted up before him some even feel that it may have been strapped around him and he may have even carried the title himself most commentators believe it was lifted up on a pole and it went before Christ so when Pilate wrote it it does say it was nailed to the cross but that's coming to Calvary but it was literally taken and then it was nailed to the cross but what we find here is this it's unique because it says Jesus of Nazareth but There's no crime. There's nothing he's guilty of. It simply says Jesus of Nazareth. The king of the Jews. How could you crucify any person. For just having what we call a common name in Israel. And of course Christ did declare the truth. That I am the king of the Jews. But my kingdom is none of this world. And so Pilate wrote And there's no doubt that it was a judicial custom. And that's one of the reasons. However, on this occasion, this was a unique occasion. No crime is stated upon the title. It doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth, a rebel and a usurper. Jesus of Nazareth, if it was Barabbas and he should have been crucified in the place of Christ, he should have. It would have said Barabbas, a murderer and a robber. It would have given us the very place he was born and he would have told us his crimes. Barabbas, a terrorist, a usurper, an individual who excited, incited sedition even against the Roman enemy. He was released but there was no charge. No charge whatsoever laid against the son of God. No doubt the crowd were looking to see. And if you were a passerby. And you were coming in for the Passover feast. And you'd never heard of Christ. Although I believe the entire nation did. But if you had been a stranger. A proselyte from another country. You'd have looked to see what he was guilty of. And you would find nothing. But the title Jesus. Jehovah. Saviour. King. King. Of God's ancient people. It's a tremendous title. And it was written by one of the most ungodly men that ever walked this earth. I want to tell you another reason for the writing of this title was not only because it was a judicial custom, but because it was really Pilate's contempt for the Jews. Now I know that he is compliant in the murder and the killing of the Prince of Life. He ordered the scourging. He ordered the crucifixion. He even said to Christ, do you not know that I have power, authority, to let you go, but he didn't, and he should have. He even acknowledged the Christ. It's within my remit, although the Lord says you have no power unless it's given you from above, acknowledging the sovereignty of God and a puny man really is in the sight of God. Pilate acknowledged that he had the power, but such was his feeling against the Jews, that he felt that they had shut him in, To the crucifying of Christ. Against the better judgment of his wife. Of Herod. And of himself. For each one said he's a just man. And they found no fault in him. Yet he felt because. If he was to let this man go. Who claimed to be a king. That was the real statement. Who claimed to be a king. When Pilate realized he was no threat to Caesar. He was afraid. That if Caesar ever found out that he had let a man go and set him free who claimed to be a king. And the Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. That was a lie. They weren't loyal to Caesar. Far from it. They were not loyal to Caesar. They hated the Rome and they hated the Roman occupation of their land. But I'll tell you this. Pilate, although he was compliant in the death of Christ, such was his contempt for the Jews. He was unhappy because he felt they forced him into doing this and he didn't want to do it but he had no choice because he valued his place in society and his position with Rome more than his soul and more than Christ. He would make Christ king of the Jews. He would have that title written so that every Jew traveling into Jerusalem for the Passover and all those that went out to watch the spectacle of crucifixion would understand that he's guilty of nothing but a claim To be the son of God. And king of the Jews. And he called him by his name Jesus. Which is. We have the English word Jesus. Which really is the translation from the Greek. And we have as well uh, the Hebrew Joshua. It's the same name. It means Jehovah the saviour. And when he wrote Jesus. He was writing this is Jehovah. The saviour. And then he says he's king. He's lord. He's the king of glory. Without realising it. Out of his hatred and contempt for the Jews. He would have the last word. The Jews even came to him. They sent a delegation when they saw the title. They saw it. And they despised it. And they sent a delegation. The strongest delegation to Pilate. I have no doubt. We don't have the scriptural record. I have no doubt. And I believe that they would have threatened violence. Now Pilate if you don't take this off. If you write that and keep it there. Then we can't guarantee that a mob. Will not create sedition in this very province of Judea that you're over. And then what would Caesar think that you can't even govern the Jews? You'll never get any position in Rome if you can't prove yourself faithful here. I know it's not in scripture. They had to send a delegation and put pressure on Pilate to change. But such was his contempt for the Jews and what they had forced him to do. He actually said these words. What I have written. I have written. That's it. I'm not going to change it. I've written. It'll, stay. it'll be paraded. From the city wall. Right to Golgotha. And then when he's on the cross. When everybody's looking at him. I'll tell you why he was crucified. Because he's your king. And he even said that. Not only behold the man. But on one occasion he says. Behold your king. This is your king. And look what you've caused me to do. To your king your hatred and envy for him. Pilate would hold Christ, not only Christ up for scorn, but he would expose the hatred of the Jews who cried for the crucifying of their rightful Messiah, Prince and King. But you know, far above custom, far above the contempt of individuals, this title, I believe, properly was given by the providential will of God. God so ordained it that his innocent and his sinlessly impeccable son would walk to Calvary. And people would know who he is, Jehovah the Savior. They would know that he had done no wrong and done no sin. And that he was the innocent lamb and he would be crucified for the sins of all his believing people. And then he would have the title that everybody could read. God saw to it that his son... We have the title, On the Cross. When everyone looked at him, and even the world today, looking at Christ through the Bible, they will see he's Jehovah, Saviour. And he's the King, the Lord, the King of Kings, and the Lord of all glory. He's Jesus of Nazareth, different from any other Joshua, Jehovah the Saviour. He's identified with that town. And furthermore, he's King of the Jews, or he's the Lord, He's God and God saw to it that he would have his son and the title displayed that all would see and to make sure he would have it written in Greek and Latin and he would have it written in Hebrew. No one would mistake passing by that this is Jehovah the Saviour. This is the King or the Messiah or the Lord of glory. The title proclaimed The great and the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is Savior King. That's who He is. And when you call Him Savior, when you call Him Savior, you call Him by His name. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. God saw to it on the cross. That this eternal truth concerning his only begotten and well-beloved son. And the darling of the father's bosom. The very heartbeat of God. Veiled in human flesh. this truth would be proclaimed at Calvary. On the cross we're looking at Jehovah. The saviour of sinners. The Messiah prince. And the king of grace. And the king of glory. The king of righteousness and the king of peace, and the king of love, and the king of all kings. Jesus Christ is God's saviour king, and the only one who can deliver us from the wrath to come, and from the consequences of our sin in hell. Tonight, I want to look with you at the title, Above the Cross. The first thing I want you to consider is this, that this title was divisive. This title was divisive. Now if you look with me at John 19 verses 21 and 22. You will soon see how divisive this uh, title was. Because the Jews and Pilate argued over it. And they fought about it. Look what it says in verse 21. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate. Write not. Don't you dare write that. King of the Jews. But that he said. Don't you affirm this truth. You just say this man claims that it's false. You, you write that it's not true. You just put there he said it. Don't you say that he is the king of the Jews. We disagree with that. And they were literally coming against Pilate in such a way with anger. It caused great division, consternation among the chief priests and among the Jews. They represented the Jews who cried crucify him. And Pilate says... What I have written, I have written. I'm not for changing it. I don't care what size of delegation you send. I don't care who you represent in this country. I don't care one bit what you threaten against me. What I have written stays. I will not be changing it. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Did Pilate really believe? I think it was more for contempt of the Jews rather than belief, although I'm sure there was something in his conscience whereby he says, I find no fault in him. And if he says he's king of the Jews and he's the Messiah, and what troubled him most was the claim that he was a son of God. And he gave him that, really, that name, Joshua, Jesus, Jehovah, the Savior. And can I say to you, the chief priests were furious. Of course they were. I'll tell you better still. I believe in my heart that they represented the feeling of the people as well. They didn't like to think that they had done this to their king, to their so-called Messiah the one who came and healed and demonstrated that he was the Messiah by power and by miracles I want to tell you something they demanded that there would be a change and Pilate gave them the answer there'll be no change you can argue with me you can debate it until the sun rises and the sun sets there'll be no change what? I have written I have written end of story that's what he was saying so there on the cross for all to see was the Jews rejected King on the human level That's all. Pilate upheld without realising the very claims of Christ. Jesus. Jehovah. Saviour. King. Messiah Prince. Royal. God himself. Amazing, isn't it? But can I say something to you, men and women? There's no difference today. Because the cross is still a divisive issue. You introduce the cross into preaching, witnessing, or into society or into your home, and you'll soon see that there is a mighty division. The Bible tells us, and Jesus said it, that it's impossible, but offenses must come. Now, I could be the most or the least offensive minister you'll ever meet, but you know full well I'm not. Maybe your minister is. But I could try my best. There are a few ministers here, the Reverend Wilson as well, and McLeod, But I could try our best to... Be non-offensive. And we could come preaching. Tell you how good you are. What a great person you are. Great character. Great nature. How kind you are. What a good husband. Good wife. And we could build you up. And then we could come with non-offensive themes. And we could speak about love for God. And love for your neighbor. Doing the best you can. We could center our entire ministry. On all of these things. And we could try our best. To be non-offensive. But the moment we preach Christ. It's an offence to the flesh. It's impossible. But offences must come. And there is the offence of the cross. You know why? Because it puts human nature down. It doesn't give man any standing before God. All other religions. All of them. Give man a standing before their false god. It gives them worth and merit. It gives them some Value in the sense of good works and meriting paradise or favour with their God. But the gospel puts down human nature. It tells man that he's a sinner and he's lost and he's undone. And he can do nothing to help himself. And he can do nothing to save his own soul. And therefore when you introduce the cross. The Bible tells me that it is very divisive. You only have to introduce Christ and his teaching today in society. And the next thing before you know it, you're on the Nolan Show. And there are many other shows as well, by the way. As we see some on today for the stand on the Lord's Day and being castigated. And the division there is among people concerning Christ and his teaching. But I want to tell you something. The cross to the Jews was a stumbling block. The cross to the Gentiles was utter foolishness. What? Believing and having righteousness without works? Being justified without the law? Oh, it's foolishness just to believe and receive. To the Jews, a stumbling block. They couldn't accept Christ as the only Savior. And to the religious world, it's it's controversial. But to those of us who were saved, It's the dynamite of God unto salvation. And what does the cross mean to you, my friend? What does it mean to you? Tell me, what does the cross mean to you? Is the cross the place where God's saviour king suffered, bled, and died for our sins? Is it? What does the cross mean to you tonight? Is it the place where God... Punish sin on the body of his sinless son. Our substitute in our guilty room instead. What does the cross mean to you tonight? Does it mean anything? Does it? Is it the place where Christ paid with his own life's blood. The price for our sin. And suffered on his own body the undiluted wrath of God. That you and I might have eternal life. Peace with God. And that God would reconcile himself to us. Man's gospel is man-centered. Man reconciling himself to God. It's impossible. But our gospel is God-centered, Christ-centered. God takes the initiative. And he reconciles through the death of his son himself to fallen, sinful sons and daughters of Adam's race. Is the cross, my friend, a place where Christ paid the price for sin? Where he provided a way of salvation from wrath to come. Is it the place where you must come to if you are to be saved? If you are to know sins forgiven? We sung the hymn the other night. I think it was maybe in the community hymn singing. The way of the cross leads home. And how true that is. The way of the cross leads home. I spoke to a woman. We were doing a wedding and I spoke to this lady and I I was chatting to her. And she emphasised uh, that her son uh, was baptised and confirmed. And I said to her, well, you know, baptised and confirmed, so what do you mean? this? she says, well, he's baptised and he's confirmed. He's got to do well in life. And you know, you people said to me, why do you mention baptism? Why do you mention confirmation? People don't trust in those things. Can I tell you, I was baptised in an Anglican church. I was uh, christened as they call it, and then I was also confirmed. And I tell you this, I remember the prayer book, I memorized it. It says these words after confirmation and even after the rite of baptism, seeing then, dearly beloved, that this child is regenerate. It actually used that word, regenerate, born again, through the rite of baptism. I memorized the prayer book. I memorized it. And at my baptism, I didn't memorize it then, but later on in years coming to my confirmation, I memorized it. It said, the priest shall say, seeing then, daily beloved, that this child, after the rite of baptism, is regenerate, born again, a child of God. And then at confirmation, I was to confirm vows that were made on my behalf at my, at my baptism. And then I was confirmed in the Christian faith, and I was told, I quote, you can take your first communion. And I feared taking it. I did fear taking it. I really did. I read the passage and it says that if you eat or drink unworthily you drink damnation to your soul. And in my conscience then I thought this is not right. And I said to my father, Dad, I don't want to do this. He was an unregenerate man himself. And he said, son, just go and take your first communion. That's all. Then don't go back again. That's what he got me to do. Because I had a hold of my shoe. When I knelt at the altar, all you could see was the sock hanging out <laughs> of the shoe. But you can understand. People do believe that today. But I want to tell you, it's the cross that leads home. I went over to Rutherglen. I was preaching in some meetings for Reverend Wesley Irwin. And I said to him, and I know there are people who say that it's said of this place and that place. And before you know it, you don't know which illustration's right and which one's wrong. But I said to the Reverend Wesley Irwin, could you take me to Glasgow Cross? And he smiled and he says, I know why you want to go there. And he asked me, I'm sure you've used the illustration yourself. He says, I have. I says, "No, it's not too far from Parkhead Celtics Football Dragon. I says, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> but he says, right, we'll go. And he took me to it. And we related the story together. Some people say it's, it's another place, it's another place, and sometimes you wonder. And but the illustration still holds good. Of those two young people, boy and a girl, brother and sister, lost in the great city of Glasgow, trying to find their way home. Cut a long story short, The policeman eventually finds them, chats to them. couldn't understand where they lived and he named certain places in Glasgow. Do you know this? Do you know that? And he mentioned Glasgow Cross and he says, we know that. We know it. And he got them to Glasgow Cross and he was able to direct them to their own little house. And the illustration goes on as you know. If you get the sinner to the cross, they'll find their way home from For the way of the cross leads home. I shall ne'er get sight of those gates of light if the way, if the way of the cross, the way of the cross I miss. Don't miss the cross, because if you miss the cross, my friend, you're lost. Can I say secondly, that this title not only was divisive, but this title above Christ was inclusive. You notice what it says in John 19 and verse 20. It says the title was written in three different languages. It was written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, and it was written in Latin. And Pilate saw to it that this title, I don't believe any other title was written like that. This title was written in the three major or main languages of the day. It was written in Hebrew, which you should know is the national language of the Jews. They would have understood the title And if there were those coming who were proselytes and they were Greeks or even folks coming just because the festival was there and it was a time to be and the buzz was in Jerusalem and they wanted to join and they were Greeks. Well, Greek was what is known as the common language of the people. It was the national language of the Jews. The Greek was the common language of the people. So whenever you were doing business, generally business was done in the Greek language. It was the common language of the people. And so the Lord saw to it that this title of the cross, this gospel proclamation would be inclusive. None would be left out. Then it was written in Latin, which was the official language of the Roman Empire. Not even the Romans occupying Israel. Not even the Jews who were natives to the land. Not even the Greeks or Gentiles. That's what it really means. Gentiles coming in. They could speak the common language of the people. Certain words they would have known, to be able to do business with. Men have known it fully. But they knew enough. And to see the title written in Greek Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then the Roman Saturian and the Romans who were there. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then the, he- the Hebrew language for the Jews themselves. Jesus, Joshua of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So the title could be read and understood by all who passed by the cross. And in verse 20, the cross, the Bible says, was nigh to the city. Do you see that? He had it written in Hebrew, in Greek, in Latin. And then the cross where he had the placed was nigh to the city. Now, providentially, God placed there that place for crucifixion. There's no doubt. Uh, we do believe that it was Mount Moriah. We do believe that that's the very place where Abraham himself, uh, we're getting a bit of controversy now. Uh, offered his son Isaac. We believe within our hearts that that was the place on the mountains of Moriah. It certainly would have been one of the hills, if not the actual place. Maybe even the place where David himself, for the threshing floor, offered the sacrifice. But nevertheless, we'll not go there. But never, we can say that it was nigh to the city. It's very close to the city, just outside the city walls. And it was there that God saw to it. Those who were coming and going through the city. And remember it's the busiest time of the year. Uh, There were tens of thousands of people. Flocking in and out of Jerusalem. In and out of Jerusalem. There were pilgrims coming. There's no doubt that they sung. As they journeyed the Psalm 121. And by the way. Can I tell you. One of the titles of the Psalm 121. Listen to it. It's called the Soldier's Psalm. Imagine in a free church. And we asked everybody to stand up. And says, right folks, we're going to sing the soldier song. (laughs) Turn to Psalm 121. (laughs) That's what it's called. The Pilgrim Psalm or the soldier song. We're not bigots. We do sing the soldier song. Only it's the Psalm 121. Can I say something to you? This gave an opportunity to everyone passing by. Whether they were Jew or Gentile. Whether they were Roman. Or whether they were Hebrew. Whether they were Gentiles. No matter who they were. It included them all. Jews. Romans. Gentiles. And I want to tell you something. The cross is all inclusive. You see salvation is not bound to a national people. The Jews did believe that no one could be saved but Jews. One of the occasions they wanted to stone the Lord. Because he spoke of a woman That was saved. And he spoke of Naaman who was saved. And he spoke about those who were outside the Jewish nation. Who were saved on one occasion. They lifted stones to stone him to death. Because he had spoken about Gentiles coming in to the commonwealth of Israel. And being brought in to fellowship with God. And of course we know that the cross is all inclusive. We don't believe in universal salvation. We're not saying that. But we do believe in the universal application of the message of the cross. It is for every creature. It doesn't matter who you are, what class, colour, creed or religion. It doesn't matter where you are in the social ladder, whether you're up high, morally, or you're way down low, like many of us. It matters little where you've come from or what your background is, whether you're Jew, Gentile, Roman. It doesn't matter. The cross is all-inclusive. And the Lord writes now, A message to the entire world in Bible times. Jew, Hebrew, Latin, Roman, Greek, Gentile. So that all would hear and see and read the title. The great proclamation of the gospel. There in the title above Christ. Jesus, Jehovah is the saviour. God himself in human flesh is the saviour of the world. And he's king, he's messiah. He's come, he's arrived, he's died for the sins of all his believing people. And so the message of the cross is universal in its application and its invitation. I want to tell you it calls all people and all languages, irrespective of racial barrier or the colour of a man's skin or a woman's religion. It calls you to repentance and faith in Christ. And therefore I can say tonight, from you. For whosoever will, may come. And if you come to Christ, he will save you. If you repent, he will pardon you. If you come to him and call upon him, you will find him. He's very near. You only have to come as a guilty sinner. And look to Christ and you will be saved. Christ is a saviour for sinners. He's a saviour for the wildest of sinners. Remember the madman of the Gadarenes in Mark chapter 5? No man could tame him. I'm glad the gospel can tame the wildest of sinners. I want to tell you something. He is a saviour for the most wayward of sinners. The prodigal son of Luke 16. And maybe you have a son or a daughter and they've gone astray. And many of us have parents. Our lives are wrapped up in our children. And when they're good, we're good. And when they're down, we're down. And as a parent, I say this on behalf of my own family and my own children that I love more than any other except the Lord. Keisha's listening. I want to tell you. My life's wrapped up in them. And I do not desire silver or gold for my children. But they might walk with God. They might know the Lord. It doesn't matter. What job they have. It doesn't matter what education they get. It does not matter to me. how far up or down the social ladder they are. I don't care. The only thing matters to me maybe I'm wrong is that they know the Lord they walk with God it's all I desire I don't desire silver or gold and I have nothing to give them but I have the gospel and eternal riches of God's grace and I pray the same for your family and mine you see it is inclusive it's for you if you'll only come And trust the Saviour. I want to tell you the worst of sinners can be saved. Not the case when Paul says, Of whom I am chief. What about Manasseh? I met a man and he said to me these words. I says to him, Are you saved? I asked him the question. And he says, You know, nobody's ever asked me that. I find this hard to believe because he was eighty or eighty three years of age. And I says, Are you saved? He says, You're the first man ever to ask me that. Now, of course he was preached to. But he says, I've never been asked, am I saved? So I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not. And I said, well, what keeps you back? And he told me. He told me why he wasn't saved. I want to tell you something. Whenever I considered that, when I thought about that, I thought about why he wasn't saved. And then he said to me these words. He says, you know, I'm too bad to be saved. And I tell you folks, there's a meanness. I laughed out loud. And he looked at me, and I says to him, using his name, I says, that's a nonsense, and you know Phil. well. You've heard too many gospel sermons and preachers, more than I have ever had, to know that there's none too bad, but the Lord can see it. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from some, from most, now from all sin. I'm glad to say that when I went back to see that man, God had worked in his heart, and he had overcome his weakness. in his own living room I had the joy of pointing that man at 83 years of age to Christ he's with the Lord tonight absent from the body present with the Lord too bad what a nonsense there's some people who say I'm too good to be saved I don't really need to be saved I'd be worried more about that person than someone who knows I'd be more worried if you says, well I don't need your salvation I'm a good person you telling me That God will punish me forever in hell? I don't believe that. Listen, I do not agree with that. I could never countenance that. That's not the God that I believe in. Well, that's a false God then. It's not the God of the Bible. Let me hurry on because not only was this title above Christ divisive and inclusive, can I say something to you? The title was affirmative. Notice what Pilate says. He says there in verse 19, what I have written, I have written, this is the truth and it'll stand. Without him knowing it, he affirms the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. This superscription, this title above the cross was public. And it was a positive affirmation of the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Now what think ye of Christ? Is he God? There's the starting point And we know you start off as a sinner, yes. But here's the starting point in belief. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? Do you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he came into this world. By virgin birth. Pilate affirms it. Jehovah. Saviour. And he even says. Nazareth. Name's a very place on earth where he resided. He didn't say Jesus from heaven. Although he is from heaven. He was speaking of his humanity. And he was also acknowledging his deity. He's Jesus and on the earth, Nazareth. But he's also king. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe he's God? Do you believe he was veiled in human flesh? That deity is in union with our humanity for our salvation. Do you believe that? If you say to me, a preacher, I do. I believe he's God. I believe in all my heart that he is truly man. And that he is Jehovah the Savior. Well, I asked you then another question. If he is Jehovah the Savior, is he your Savior? And why not if he isn't? Why have you not come to him, trusted him, believed on him, received him? If you really believe that, maybe it's just a mental assent. Could I say something to you? The devil believes that. He believes it. He knows who Christ is. He knows he's Jehovah, the creator. He knows he's the second person of the blessed trinity. He knows he's God, the son who became a man by virgin birth. He knows full well that he is the mediator and redeemer and saviour of the body. He knows it, but he's not saved. It's not enough knowing about Christ. You need to know him personally. You need to come to him and have an intimate relationship with him by faith receive him into your heart into the very core of your soul and your life and your being whereby he rules and he reigns and he saves you from your sin and he's your hope for eternity and you live for him and you love him and you follow him it's more to Christianity than just coming to Christ there's a life of rigorous discipleship you see he is when you take both titles together affirming the truth about Christ it's this one he is Jehovah the saviour and he's king He's Jesus who shall save his people from their sins. This he did when he died as a substitute for sinners on the cross. He's Jesus who shall save. This he did whenever he endured the undiluted wrath of God upon himself for all of our sins. This he did, Jesus shall save. And when he suffered, bled and died and rose again from the dead in order that he might purchase salvation for the whosoever will. And he's Jesus king. In other words, he rose victorious from the dead and we know that on Easter Sunday uh, we will be thinking again although we think every Lord's Day and every day of our lives of the resurrection of Christ what an embarrassment that was to the devil when on the first day of the week Jesus rose from the dead and we believe he was crucified on Good Friday we believe that 9 a.m. in the morning on Good Friday our Lord was crucified and we know that when 12 noon came darkness until 3pm in the afternoon was on the face of the earth and we know that from the cries of that darkness God forsook his son, Christ thirsted for our sins and then Christ finished the work and commended his spirit to God, they took him down from the cross they laid him in 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 an empty sepulcher and then on the third day Sunday he rose victorious from the dead, I tell you he's not only saviour, he's lord, he's king he rules and rules. Listen, we don't have to go on a pilgrimage to Israel. We don't. We don't need to go on some tour to Israel. It would be nice to go. You'll not find the body of Christ among the dead. He's not here. I tell you where he is. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's King. He's Lord. And these pictures we see of Christ are false. I'm not sure exactly what message I'm preaching tomorrow night. Strange, isn't it? I'm toying between two. But I have the title, so I don't go anywhere really. <laughs> no, I, I'm actually tempted, very tempted, uh, to take you to a passage and I think that's where the Lord will lead me. But finish looking, having a look at the risen Christ. And I'll not go there tonight. Uh, but I wonder, is he your Saviour King? Is he? Do you know him tonight? Maybe you're listening online now, maybe you're in this meeting physically. Have you come to Christ the Saviour King personally? Is he your Lord? Is he your saviour? Is he king of your life? Have you looked to his work on the cross? Are you sheltering beneath the shadow of his cross? Tell me, are you washed in his precious blood? Have you trusted him? Why not? Why haven't you come to Christ? Can I say, fourthly, we're nearly finished. Sorry, I'm going on, but let me finish. Fourthly, let me say the title was not only divisive and inclusive and affirmative, but it was informative as well. Because in John 19 and verse 20, those that were passing by, did Pilate not say, what I have written, I have written. It was informative. I've written this for a reason. It's information. You know, there were many passing by the cross, and this title meant nothing to them. It didn't register with them. They read it, they saw it, but it meant nothing to them. And yet it was information. God was communicating To those gathered around the cross, the message of the gospel, it contained enough information that at least one man that we know of, the thief on the cross, read that title. He had no Bible. He had no sermon preached to him that we know of. There is no record that this man ever followed Christ. There is no biblical record to say that this man ever heard Christ preach few sayings from the lips of Christ on the cross before he died but the title Jesus of Nazareth King of the Jews was enough information to convey the gospel message and at some point in his antagonistic spirit against Christ he cited against his fellow thief and he said Lord remember me Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, remember me. There was enough information and in that little title to save him. Now let me tell you something. How much information have you been given? How many sermons have you heard? How many preachers have you listened to? How many gospel tracts have you read? How much of the Bible have you even memorized as a child? God has given you more information than even the centurion who said, and we believe he was saved at the cross, when he said, truly, this man is Jesus, Jehovah the Savior. He is the King of the Jews. He is the Son of God. That's all the information they had. But I tell you something, if those individuals perished with scant information, How terrible their hell must be, but how awful the hell must be. For an individual who has the full knowledge, the entire canon of Scripture, to reveal you the entrance of sin into the world, the extent of sin upon mankind, and the expiation, the doing away, and the paying of sin at the place called Calvary. I tell you, you have more information than anybody at the cross ever had, and yet you're not saved. You see, it is not only divisive. It's not only inclusive and affirmative, but it's informative. And I tell you, you have more. And these people were saved, but they're not. How awful must be the hell for the one who has the full information about the gospel. That you're a sinner lost and undone, and that God sent his son, Christ died, rose, he offers freely salvation to you. If you'll only come, I want to tell you something as we close because uh, this title on the cross uh, not only is divisive and it's true it is divisive it's not only uh, divisive and it's inclusive and affirmative and informative but finally this title was conclusive because Pilate says what I have written I have written now Pilate you will not take credit you will not take any credit for what you have written even though you says what I have written I have written because you were compliant in the death of the Son of God. But the title represented the truth. It's conclusive. You can't argue with it. This is the truth. Pilate himself said, I can't change it. Can I tell you something? Neither can God Almighty. Because it's the truth that stands. And what has been written about Christ is conclusive. It is written. And what God has said about his Son is true. No matter about unbelief, and Christ today is the great divide. I finish by saying to you, there is, I haven't been there, but I've seen geographically on Google. I've seen the place. There's a place, maybe Kevin knows about it, in uh, the Rocky Mountains. And uh, it's a little archway made of sticks and twigs. And written over there's a little title and it's called The Great Divide. And a cloud comes over that geographical point on earth and it drops its little showers And strangely enough, just at that geographical place on earth, and no other place that we know of, it's called the Great Divide. And what happens at that very point is that rain falling from the same shower falls at that point. Some go into a little stream and into a basin, and they flow into the Atlantic Ocean. And yet some out of that same shower fall at that very point. And they go in the opposite direction into a little stream. They're held into a little basin. And then it flows into the Pacific Ocean. Falling from the same shore. At that geographical point on earth. Their destinies are far thousands of miles apart. And they'll rarely meet again. So Christ is the great divide. And what you do with Christ will determine your destiny. For glory or despair heaven or hell, and tell me what are you going to do tonight with jesus christ neutral ye cannot be someday the savior may be asking what shall i do with thee? do the right thing with christ come to him take him as your sleep repent of your sin and receive him into your heart that's in prayer